Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to For Men About It and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Izette. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this journey of all things fermented with an emphasis on homebrew. Speaking of homebrew, what's coming up, Mary? <laughs> Announcements. <laughs> September 8th, Brooklyn Wart. Um, Chris and I will be judging. There will be about 30 homebrewers. It's open to the public. You can find tickets at brooklynwort.com. Your tickets get you taste of all the homebrews and a plate of food. It should be a really good time. You also get to vote for who you think made the best homebrew. That's right. And speaking also of homebrew, we have a homebrew friend uh, in town, a, a recent guest, Sean McGinty. How you doing, man? I'm all right, man. Thanks. <laughs> He's in town for a couple of days. We did a beer together down at 508, uh, one of his old recipes, a tamarind wheat beer, and had a lot of fun making it. And how do you think it turned out? You haven't been able to taste it, but I've had it on tap there for three weeks. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I made it as a Dunkelweiss. I got down to the 508 last night, and it was fantastic. I mean, dream come true. Fantastic. I'm happy about that. I had a great time doing it. Same here. Too many more. Yeah. Also, our friend Jordan has a company called Beer Dreamer. He does beer and food pairings, and he has given our listeners a special discount. So what you're going to get is you're going to get a pack of two large size bottles and some andouille sausage. It's actually a Cajun grill kit set this month. So you're going to get some andouille sausage, barbecue sauce, and some local Louisiana chocolate. Just go to BeerDreamer.com to get your package. If you order before tonight, you'll receive it by Labor Day weekend and use the code FEMENT, F-U-H-M-E-N-T, for 15% off. I like what he's doing. I mean, he's a, his target audience is for, for people, or to get people into beer and, the, and, the, and just the, the fun of beer and food pairings, which is one thing Mary and I did a lot way back when. Yep, back in the <laughs> NYC. Deck. No, it is a good way to explore a lot of different flavors. I think he gives, especially this kit is a really nice base kit, and then you can bring more food in, um, with it to really you know turn it into a party so and try a lot of stuff with those beers and one of the beers they're both from abita one of the beers is actually not otherwise available in new york state so it's a pretty special edition i'm not sure how that works but it's very interesting you know what else great edition that guy in the studio <laughs> over there today we feature rafael from enlightenment wines how you doing rafael uh, i'm good <laughs> You're looking good. He's Thank got you. his sunglasses yeah. on. Well, he took them off. I think it, well, it was confusing. So, <laughs> also, I turned my mic. <laughs> okay, we're d- technical difficulties here. Okay, wait, almost there. All right, there. We hey, go. welcome back. Okay, hi. What is Enlightenment Wines? Um, Enlightenment Wines is a New York State winery. It's a farm winery. Um, it's probably the smallest winery in the state, and I focus on how um, small. It's re- It's it's really small. It's, um, I mean, like 250 gallons okay. a year. A year. Yeah, maybe 500. If wow. I'm like really pumping it out. Yeah. Um, so, and also the focus is very specific. It's uh, just esoteric wines. So I don't really make anything out of grapes. Um, 
So I do meads. I do fruit, fruit wines. I do herbal wines. I do like a dandelion wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I work with just New York State products. That's and, great. Yeah. And um, mostly I sell to a kind of uh, subscription-based model that I've sort of invented that's based on the community-supported agriculture model of being a farmer. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So yeah. what does it mean to be a farm, to have a farm winery in New York State? What does that mean? So a farm winery is a, a license type. Um, and it was introduced relatively recently so that small producers could have um, sort of regained some of the rights that were lost during Prohibition, essentially, with the agreement that they would use local products and keep the size small. Um, so one of the best things about it is that it lets you sell directly to uh, people. Instead of going through a distributor or something. Right. So cool. that's, for me, that made, made it seem a lot more like a farmer, you know, so that, like you go to the farmer and you get the food. It's like, it's weird. I think if people don't know about liquor laws, they don't really understand that there's all these roadblocks put in so that the person who makes the alcohol is not anywhere near the person who buys the alcohol. And that was because they wanted to reduce the power of, you know, gangsters basically at a certain point. But it doesn't really make any sense right now for small producers. So... They've removed that, and what it means is that I can go and sell directly to restaurants or liquor stores, or I can sell to people, and I always thought that it was more interesting to try and build a business where I could be as close to the consumer as possible, mm-hmm. um, with the idea of kind of kind of like, like being a baker in a small town, and that's like that you make the bread, and if it's you're a good bakery, people really like it, you know, but it's not like um, you are... I don't know, trying to cater to this kind of mass audience and all this kind of stuff. You just make something very specific and the people come to you uh, who want it, I think, is sort of the idea. Now, what got you into fermentation? Oh, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know. You know, like, I was kind of, I kind of missed the foodie wave, like, about, by about 10 years. Like, I was out, in 2000, I was, like, farming heirloom crops and stuff and trying to figure out how to get as close to like making all the stuff I can so I learned to make sauerkraut and um, you know at, at the time there was you know Sandra Katz hadn't been around so there was very little literature on this kind of stuff um, like there I remember reading uh, the Reader's Digest there's like a book that they made that's like for like homesteaders and it's actually amazing it's a really great book um, and that was it pretty much you know the that um Alaskan Bootlegger's Bible, which is a really also great resource, I think, uh, wasn't out. And there was no internet. And, you know, like, I mean, maybe, the, maybe there was the internet, but I don't know. You know, so wasn't as... Not in your world. Yeah. Not, <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I guess there was internet in 2000, but it wasn't like a... You know, whatever. There, yeah, I'm sure there's forums and stuff, but I, I just... It was AOL and chat rooms. Yeah, yeah, or something. <laughs> you know, I, but, you know, whatever, you know. So, like, I was just kind of going through the paces, and I tried... I eventually tried everything, um... But the first time I, I ran into it was I was tr- probably 19, and I was traveling in New Mexico, and there was a kind of older brother of a friend of mine who was a kind of early DIY guy. Um, and he, he would put out a zine called Seedhead, which was, uh, it was cool. It was like how to make a bicycle-powered washing machine, and then like how to like make a, like take two, two tin cans, and you can make a really efficient fire that they use in Africa and stuff. And, uh, he was making cider in like a giant um, stainless steel hot water tank. Hmm? It was awful, I think. <laughs> um, 
But it was exciting, you know, because until that moment, you know, this kind of stuff's sort of a mystery, right? It's like it's something you go to the store and get. And um, at a certain point, I realized that I was, like, spending a third of my disposable income on, like, Miller or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, I was kind of more of a punk, and I didn't really like that. You know, it was too corporate. So I started, I would, you know, this is kind of the artist side of me, but I, I just was like, okay, so how much alcohol do I need to make if I'm only going to drink alcohol I make? Right? That yeah. was like sort of the question. And I did, you know, you can do this stuff on a little notebook. Like, it just takes a few minutes, and you realize, like, <laughs> okay, well, how much do I drink? You know, and then, like, how much is that? And, oh, well, the first thing I realized was that I shouldn't make beer. Beer is for idiots. It's way too much work. <laughs> it takes up a lot of space. Uh, and it's, like, not, not very alcoholic in the end. It's like, so, you know, if you want to be efficient, you make the most alcoholic thing you can. Right. For the least right. amount of money and the least amount of work. And, and actually, what that is is apple wine. Like, actually, the, if you want to make the most amount of alcohol with the least amount of work for the least amount of money, you go and you get apple cider and you add sugar to it. And yeah. then you can uh, ferment that. And So that's sort of where I, I mean, that's, I wouldn't recommend doing that right now. But, um, you know, I, I started with that um, and sort of uh, worked my way up from there, I think. But it wasn't very much. Like, you could do it with, like, six carboys. Which I had room for, you know. And that was your that was your yearly allotment of. No, that's just how much like uh, infrastructure I needed. Okay. Um, yeah, I probably drank twelve of those in the end. I mean, it's weird, you know. You go to a party, everyone wants to drink your wine, and then you don't have any wine, and then, you know, you just have to make extra. But um, yeah, so I did that for about I did that I did that a year for a year. I learned a lot. And you were primarily making apple based like ciders or apple wine that at kind that of time. Thing. Yeah, yeah, at that time. And what did you learn from that? those kind of early investments or what do you remember from that time um well i'm trying to think i mean it's kind of pretty straightforward at a certain point like you know it's um what you don't what you you don't start learning things until you write them down that was the first thing i learned is like you don't learn anything like if you look at my notes and still today like i want to get an assistant who's like you know, if you go to any kind of proper winery or brewery, there's like a person who's the second person. The person who actually does all the work. <laughs> and it's usually some like kind of burly guy, the beard, and he's like kind of moves a little bit slow, but he's very precise. Or, you know, I mean, they're kind of a type, you know. And like, I want one of those people because <laughs> <laughs> they, they write everything down, you know, and they're like really careful about everything. Uh, but it, I had to really, really train myself to write, write things down. That was sort of this... You know, take notes on everything, like, really, just write it down. And then you can decide later if it's important. Um, right. Um, and then also the other thing I learned is that you can do, if you have uh, many small containers, you can do parallel trials. Um, instead of making one thing and then being like, hmm, I wish I had more sugar, and the next time you make it with more sugar, and like, like I wish I had, like, more of this in it, you know. Like, you can just do all the variations at once, and then take your notes, blend them back to, like, the best thing, basically. Um, or separate something out and realize it's sort of different. And then next year, you can really knock it out of the park because you've, you've done six versions of it already in one year. What are you fermenting in uh, um, with Enlightenment? I was using, I mean, if you want if you, if you to keep your startup costs small, I mean, most wineries, like I, right now I'm looking, you know, I'm basically talking to different investors and I'm trying to scale up the, mm-hmm. the process. Um, and if you want to have kind of a, if you want to like be able to have someone working every day, you know, you need to you need like two hundred thousand dollars, basically. You yeah. know, like let's not pretend it's different than that. But uh, if you just want like to make some 
want to have a job or you want to make a really small amount like I did, the cheapest and lowest cost investment is glass uh, by far. So that means carboys. Like mm-hmm. you can get like 30 glass carboys and do, you know, 200 gallons in that. And it'll cost you the tenth of buying like a stainless steel tank or... I mean, I know I never really wanted to ferment in plastic, so that sort of isolated that. But plastic mm-hmm. is also an oxygen, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I just haven't really been interested in that. So you don't? I mean, you don't have to move it around a lot. I mean, your, well, your no, glass carboys stay in one place. So that's what no, 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 no. You move them around constantly. That's the best okay. thing about them. They're, you can lift them up. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't have a pallet. Long. Yeah, I don't have a yeah. pallet jack, and they weigh about forty pounds um, and fifty pounds. It, there's an incredible economy of. Um, when you start, like, you know, you know the joke about a winery is like, what is it? It's 48% lifting heavy shit and 48% washing shit out and 4% drinking beer. Right. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, it's true, though. Actually, all of that's totally true. So um, when you start lifting cases of wine and you do that all day, you start to realize, like, there's a reason they're that size. There's a reason the bottles are a certain size. There's a reason they come in a pack of 12. Like the width of the case is a certain is the width of your arms, and if it was much bigger, much smaller, be inefficient. Uh, and those carboys are sized for a reason. Like they're about the size that you can move around all day long. If they were, I use six gallon carboys, um, but if they were eight gallons, I wouldn't be able to do that. So, um, you know, you can learn. And also, they're pretty tough. I've dropped them before, and they bounced. Oh, yeah. that's lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, we've had, we've heard the horror stories of the glass carboys following yeah, you. Yeah, no, I I broke. I can tell you all the ones I've broken. They, they weren't good stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I almost cut my foot off once actually. Uh, yeah, don't do, wow. don't yeah, work yeah. barefoot. Lesson you learned. Work barefoot? That's, yeah, it's not. And I was just moving stuff around. And, and barefoot. Was, I was wasn't even at the winery. I was at my house, you know, and um, I just bumped it, and it was just like the bottom fell off, and just like. So how long ago was it that you started permitting? Well, I've probably been doing it 10 years. And then least. when did you start Enlightenment? Uh, about four years ago. About four years ago? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the idea was, okay, I'll, I'll, I want to be in a situation where I don't have to do any sales and I don't have to do any marketing. And I just want to make really amazing wine and have people buy it without tasting it <laughs> <laughs> or seeing it. You know, this is like, but this is actually works. Um you know, once you kind of get a little bit of reputation. And, uh, sure. Yeah. So uh, that's been the model that I've, I started with, um, and I've adjusted it somewhat. Uh, it turns out that, like, some people do want to taste the wine before they drop $250 on a case, you know. Uh, so I put – so I, and then there's also people who have approached me, like, um, like Jim at, at PDT, like, came to me, and he wanted to use some of my stuff in one of his drinks. So – I do. I sell stuff to him. Um, he, he's going to take this for a new, this sparkling wine that we're using for a mm-hmm. new cocktail. Um, so there's so that so it goes to some places like that. There's a few restaurants that kind of want to join the CSA and then put the bottles on their menu. Um, and I live across the street from the Spite and Dival, so you know it's like oh god, I just I mean I just literally bring a box across the street yeah. and they pay me. It's kind of hard to turn down. <laughs> uh, and you know they're 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 really supportive. So I've I do work with some. Um, I guess it's what, what I call like direct to retail, um, but it's not the nature of the business. I don't actually really make very much money there, so it's really kind of like a way to just be. You know, there's some wine shops I love, and I want to be in communication with them, and I want to be in communication with their uh, like 
audience that mm-hmm. they're cultivating. So I do a little bit there, but usually nobody gets more than just a wine. Like nobody, you can't really get the CSA other like the three wines that are in the CSA this round. You can't like just go out and buy a bottle of each one of them, bring them right. home. Well, we got to take a quick break, and yeah. when we come back, we're going to talk about what those wines are and how to make them and uh, where you come from with all that. Okay, great. Cheers. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org today. Hey, my name is Chris Kuzmi from Ferment About It. My favorite food is liquid bread, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Fomenta About It. We're here talking to Raphael from Enlightenment Wines. And in the house, we also have our friend Sean McGinty. How you doing, man? Doing good, I'm just keep coming back to you say how you're doing. You know? <laughs> that works. I'm glad yeah, you're I doing like all that. right. Like that. You're like Robin or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, who's that? <laughs> um, so let's talk about the, what you're making and, okay. and uh, you know what's in your lineup. And specifically for those at home, like if, you know, if you were to give any advice on how to get started with some of these, okay. basically, or where you would go with this. So I'll talk about the process a little bit. Um, so this is a, you know, it's kind of seasonal, my, my CSA, right? So if you're a member, you get something for like in the d- appropriate for the season. So it's the summer. Uh, so you would get these three wines and we have them here and we'll taste them. And one is a sparkling apple and cherry mead. And um, the reason it's called, it's a mead is because it has a honey in it. So mm-hmm. uh, unlike grapes, a lot of these, like apple juice, basically, doesn't have enough sugar to, like, get the alcohol level up to about 12%, which is sort of where you want it to be really stable and taste good and everything. So uh, you, if you use honey, you can bring that up, obviously. Um, and so, but as soon as you put honey in anything, it becomes technically a honey wine. Uh, so all of these will be technically honey wines, even though they don't really taste like honey and they don't, and they're not sweet. Okay. Right. So 
Uh, the first one's a, a sparkling apple and cherry honey wine. And then uh, we're going to taste like an apple and um, elderberry still wine. That one's more like a rosé. It's a really beautiful red wine. Um, it's fermented out totally dry. And the last one is a black currant, like a black, it's considered a black meat because it has black currant in it. So it's black currant and hops. Okay. And uh, I use the hops to kind of bring, make it a little brighter. That one has a little residual sugar, but it's not a sweet wine. Okay. Um, and all the wines you can actually, if you go on my website, you can see the labels and they're all, I do all the design work. So. And um, your website is enlightenmentwines.com? That's right. Okay. It's hard to spell enlightenment in one breath. But <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can get it. You can get halfway there. And then, uh, you know, there's a blog. But the, the, the front page has all the pictures. So so how do you make this, uh, this, okay, this, so this first one? Okay, so this first one, do you want to... Uh, yeah, we'll pour it. Yeah, you just speak it. in that microphone. Okay, and so, <laughs> so this is uh, considered an ancestral method sparkling wine. So it's the method that was used before Method Champagne. Okay. The champagne method. The champagne of wine. Oh, champagne. The champagne of wine. <laughs> yes. Um, so, in for people who are used to brewing beer at home, uh, they'll uh, you know you make your beer, it's flat, it's done. You add a little sugar, you put it in a bottle, you cap it. Right. Right. And then the yeast continues to be active and uh, produces bubbles. And that's actually very similar to what I'm doing. Um, in the champagne method, it's very complicated. They actually spend a lot of time getting the uh, leaves or the dead yeast out of the bottle. Uh, and they, they turn it upside down, and they roll it around, and then they freeze it in liquid nitrogen, and then they pull it out, and then they squirt li- like sugars in there, you know, and like sulfites, and they close it up, and that's why you get a headache. So uh, I don't do any of that. Um, so at the bottom of my wine, it'll be a little bit cloudy, and you'll taste that. Um, it's actually very good for you, all that stuff. So that's this one. So this one, you're leaving... But- so you just let it ferment out, mm. and then you're adding some additional sh- priming sugar at Absolute. bottling, just like you would a beer. Right. And um, this is a very—I mean, this is a really nice level of carbonation. So we actually got a half share of the CSA, oh, Chris yeah, and I right. did. And um, a friend of ours is moving out west, and so we actually op- we opened a bottle of this and toasted his. Oh, great! And it was perfect for that. Oh, so. thanks. So there is some issues. Um, the level of for, of carbonation is precisely determined by the amount of sugar in there. However. The pressure in the bottle is not. The pressure is really dependent on the temperature of the bottle. So it's very complicated and dangerous and difficult to get this right. Um, and the first time that I – because it's it's a much higher pressure than a beer. Mm-hmm. And so typically you have to – the caps that go with this bottle are actually rated for lower pressure. And, you know, I had to sort of figure all that stuff out. If you want the kind of sparkling that you get in a, in a champagne bottle, um, you need to really get the right caps and the right bottles that can withstand the pressure. And then you have to absolutely measure the sugar by, like, you need a digital scale, and you have to get that all right. It has to really be mixed in well. Uh, the first time I did this, I didn't really understand that the um, that even once in solution, the sugar water would sink, and it would be sweeter on the bottom than on the top, unless oh, you really mix yeah. mix it. Right. So you really want to mix everything. I mean, if you know, for the people at home who are trying to homebrew, like, you want to be careful at this point. Um, so yeah, we talked last week about doing staggered nutrient additions for this, or you know, with with yeah, needs. What, oh. what 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 sort of a you know going back to that part of your process? What well, do you do any? Um, I would, but you know, this is only about a third. The fermentable sugars are only about a third here because you know you've got all that juice in there, and the juice comes mm-hmm. with a lot of nutrients mm-hmm. and things. So it's not that critical. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff is about you know. There's a very weird thing going on in the homebrew world, which is that. Some of that information is coming from people who are uh, 
actually like developing it on their own and they're doing trials and it's very scientific mm-hmm. like 60% of it is just people copying each other and you don't know if it's like accurate or not and then there's this other percentage of like people trying to copy industrial methods and they're bringing it at home they're bringing it down to the like kind of smaller scale right and um, most of what happens in the industrial production of wine and I imagine beer is about like how fast can you make the stuff you know what I mean like how fast can you turn over what's in the tanks because that's the whole economy of the industry and at that point like you know yeah adding a lot of nutrients can like really make that yeast cruise and bring the temperature up can like make it go faster but um, it's rarely worth it I find like I do things really cold if I can I don't I mean I don't have a lot of temperature control but I also probably wouldn't heat things up and I do use a little bit of nutrients, but I feel like um, when I do trials, and one of the nice things about having lots and lots of carboys is you can do uh, you can do like one with a nutrient, one without it, right next to each other, same ingredients, same temperature, same year, mm-hmm. and sort of see what's going on. Um, if you're just going to make a honey wine, you need nutrients because it's sort of depleted. Uh, but but with the apples and the grapes, yeah, um, you don't need very much. Maybe just a little bit uh, to cover your bases, I guess. Uh, and also, honestly, there's. No one ever really made, like, a honey wine. Like, that's a kind of weird fantasy. Like, honey's always been mixed with other things to make wine because it doesn't have enough tannins. It doesn't taste, like, that much by itself. And, um, you know, it's always... You know, people historically have used honey in a lot of ways, but they rarely used it by itself. That's a kind of sort of a prestige thing of brewers to, like, see if they can kind of pull it off and and showcase the honey. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's not, like, historically used that way ever, you know. Now, for are you using traditional priming sugar for this one to get um, that level of carbonation, or are you using something else? Oh, well, the first thing I do is I make sure it's really dry, so I know what I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really important. You can't. I don't. I don't have the equipment to like just like bottle it when it's not done yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I but if you were to, then it would make it more dangerous for the bottles as well, right? I just, you need to you need to know what's going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way that I know how to do that is to ferment it till it's totally dry, and yeah. then add sugar. Um, but I think in this case, yeah, I used a priming, sh- just a clean priming sugar, mm-hmm. mostly because it's a really delicate flavor, and I didn't want to like mess around with anything too weird. Um, and also, I wanted to keep this. I feel like if you use other stuff, the sediment's a little thicker. Mm-hmm. So, and that's sort of the easiest. But it, it's not very much sugar, you know. Like in the end, it's like a, I don't know, like a teaspoon or something in the bottle. So mm-hmm. I'm not so worried about that. Um, it doesn't affect the flavor. That's that that much. I haven't really noticed that. It does have great carbonation. Have you ever sabered one of your bottles? I have, yes. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Everyone I wish we'd savored it here. I know. Everyone should learn to do that uh, at home. Um, <laughs> should we try the other one? I don't want to run yeah, out of time. Yeah, what's but... uh, So how does... Yes, tell us about the other yeah. one. Or like what you did with the other one and how it, the okay. process is different. Yeah, so get the... Um, get the Look out, Dren. The red, stuff the red one. <laughs> get the drunk out of here. Okay. <laughs> yes. Put on your red dress. Um, and that sweet perfume. So this would be... This is sort of like something I've been working on for a few years. Like I made, I made it once for the CSA, like two years ago, I think. Um, and, you know, I got to go back and look at my notes and everything and be like, okay. And at the end of the notes, are like, okay, next time you do this, put a little bit more elderberry in it or something. You know? So the recipe was pretty sound from the beginning, but it's just touch touch of tweaks. You, we had a good conversation before. Both of us are musicians and right. talked about, you know, how how flavor dances in things and how to perceive mm-hmm. flavors. And, you know, as, so in your notes, you've... Hold on, I'm going to give it to you. We're talking about the parallel of, of uh, you know, just mixing things and right. hearing hearing a big picture, but also being able to focus on something individually. Right. And that's, I think it's cool that you approach 
Well, I mean, you know, it, it's 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 very straightforward. It's like okay, yeah. it's like what happens first? It's like you smell it. That's the first thing that happens. So you smell it. Don't taste it. Just smell it. And then you think about that. Is there anything there? Or do you smell anything? You know, uh, when I make this apple wine, one of the problems with apples is that uh, you lose the aromatics really fast. So um, that's the smell. On the other hand, uh, so, I, you know, I basically, I start this wine. This is an apple and elderberry wine. It's got the same base as the cherry one that we just had, but doesn't have cherry, and it didn't go through the secondary fermentation. So when it starts, it's like kind of a base of an apple honey wine that I've used a lot. It's sort of like a skeleton. And it's missing a lot of things. One of the things that it's missing is the nose. Um, on the other hand, like, elderberry has a lot of nose. It has almost no flavor, but it has a lot. It's, it's, it smells great. So that was, like, a really obvious place to start. It's like, how do I get the nose back in the, in the thing? So you get an elderberry nose, and then you have an apple. And then the next thing is, like, you know, you taste it, and, you know, you taste the tartness, and then some apple, and then a little bit what seems like sugar, but it's not, because there's no sugar left, but it's sort of the illusion of sugar. And then towards the end there'll be uh, bitterness and the bitterness is really important because uh, it makes you thirsty basically and then that's why you have another drink mm-hmm. so you said you didn't use el- you don't use elderberry in, pro- in secondary with this one no there's no secondary there's no for secondary, yeah, no this, is secondary. Yeah. Just this is just a still wine yeah this is a beautiful I mean the, I think the unique thing about this is that it's very dry it is very much like a rosé wine a traditional yeah. rosé wine it has a lot of that character yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's a great color. That's that's sort of important to me. But um, also, it's just it's really easy to drink. I like this one because if you if you someone's going to sit down at a restaurant or you're going to bring a bottle to a friend, and they want to try this, and they're like, I don't know, I've never had a mead before, and I, I'm pretty, or I did, and it tasted like disgusting syrup, and it was at the weird medieval fair or something, you know, like uh, you want to give them this. Because this is a very elegant, very subtle, um, very dry thing that reminds them of a lot of other things that they've had and uh, mm-hmm. is a kind of transition for Ab- people. Absolutely. So we have one minute left, unfortunately. Okay. That's right. But tell us about the last thing that you brought. So the last thing is um, is a black currant wine. It's mostly made out of black currant juice with a little bit of honey, and it's hopped. And it is like an explosion of black currant smell. I don't know. You've had it. What did, mm-hmm. what did you think? I thought it was delicious. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask really quickly about the process of this one. When did you hop it? And you know, are The hops? You, yeah. So uh, late. You, I, I did a dry hop at the end. A dry hop at the end. Right. Yeah. And it, you did that mostly for? Because it needed something at the end. It kind of like, you know, I always kind of visualize it as like a curve, as a line. And you want that line to be kind of going somewhere. And like mm-hmm. sort of at the end, it kind of was just like, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it was felt, it went flat, felt mm-hmm. flat. In the way that this has a bitterness or something at the end that like yep. is sharp, mm-hmm. needed that. And by putting the hops in, I could get a little pepper. Mm-hmm. I would have put more hops in actually. Um, and it's that hops that you use in white in the wheat beers. Actually, I don't know what that was. It's a called. German noble hop, like a noble hop, probably yeah. like a yeah. spicy kind of hop. Well, it's kind of no a citrusy. A citrusy. Yeah, it was sort of citrusy. So I thought that would be good. And um, you know, I did. I put it in there. I, w- I would put more in next time. I think. You know, but. Awesome. Now, do you still have shares available for this season? I do, actually. Um, that's why I'm, I'm sort of... Usually usually I'm sold out, so then I kind of hide, you know? Yeah. And then I take emails and stuff. But um, this year I have uh, half shares, so I have a bunch of extra ones. And um, and they these are really delicious. So it, Absolutely. I, I think it's very inspirational. And I ship, too. That's the cool thing. So if you're in Austin or something, like, I can just send you a box. Uh, and it's kind of nice because I have new people like all over the country now. Awesome. Yeah. So thank you very much. So check out enlightenmentwines.com. And 
Next week is Labor Day weekend, so we will not be in the studio. We're taking a break. Um, but we'll be back the next week yeah. with the author of Hooch, as well as yeah. some Oma Gangster interviews. Oma Gangster. I want to come to that. Yeah, come on down. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening to For Men About It. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Fantastic work. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.